morning. Today's reading is from Luke 2, 36 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. We'll try that again. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And Father, I ask that you would speak through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, give me grace to say what you want us to hear through your word. May our hearts and minds be attentive to what you have to say. And Lord, even in the midst of me not feeling 100%, Lord, give me clarity of thought, concision of speech, so that we can learn and hear from you for your glory and for our good. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray these things. Amen. So depending on your perspective, we are either three days away from the end of 2019 or we're three days away from the beginning of 2020. And either it's a reminder to you of another year gone by or you're seeing that new year on the horizon. And it's either a day that we realize how miserably we failed at our New Year's resolutions that we set up around this time last year, right? Or this is the year, 2020, where we're actually going to go to the gym more than one day a month. We're going to drink a kale smoothie every day. We're going to fast from tech. New Year's resolutions are common time this year, but what I want us to do this, today, this morning is to take stock of our lives, and I ask myself questions, not really around New Year's resolutions, but I often ask myself questions like this. Uh, am I where I should be at 28? Am I who I should be at 28? Um, have I accomplished what I set out to accomplish this year? Did I cultivate habits that made me more like Jesus this last year? Around this time, this is when I start asking these reflective kind of questions, and often in our society, and unfortunately, I'm no different. We often evaluate ourselves based on what we've achieved over this last year. But I think how we approach and respond to this new year, this first day of a new 365-day calendar, is predicated on how we look at the totality of our lives. So hear me out. Do we gravitate towards the daunting thought that we have one less year to live? Or do we more optimistically see the year ahead as a time to enjoy our lives and serve the one who gave us life in the first place? And so rather than spending time talking about goals and New Year's resolutions, I want to reflect on this question. Are we more prepared to meet Jesus today than we were last year at this time? So whether you believe in Jesus or not, we all know that our days on this earth are numbered, right? Right? And the way that we spend our time now is forming us, and it's preparing us for our last day. And I want to admit that I'm not, at the outset here, I'm really not in a position to teach many of us in this room what it means to age well. Many of you have lived 
more years than me. You've experienced far more of life than me, the peaks and the valleys. But I've spent this last week or so thinking about what it means to live well and to finish life well. I wasn't here at our Christmas Eve services because I was up in Indiana with family as a grandfather is passing. And when a cherished family member passes, we often reflect on our own lives, we reflect on life's meaning, um, and often it makes us evaluate life in a different way than we would if we're not really in that scenario. So we all react a little bit differently, but one pastor on staff at Christ Community, he recently observed from his experience being around those nearing the end of life, he said, often they're either filled with great bitterness or great joyfulness. And whether you are 8 or 28 or 68 or 88, this question is one that we should all ask ourselves. Are we living our lives in such a way that we find ourselves growing more joyful or more jaded? Are we becoming more bitter or are we becoming better? Are we grumpy or are we grateful? So this morning we're finishing our series in the first songs of Christmas. And in this series we've been looking at the first two chapters of Luke, right? So we're, um, we're in this passage today that's not actually a song. You probably didn't hear a song in there. But what we have is a testimony of an often overlooked Bible character. And that's the prophetess Anna. And you might have noticed that we only have three verses in the entire Bible about Anna, but there is a lifetime of wisdom and insight in these passages. And so we're going to see today, through the life of Anna, that a life prepared to meet Jesus is a life of joy. Turn with me to Luke 2, 36 and 37. I'll read it for us. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, And the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So even though we don't have a detailed account of Anna's life, we have a large scope of her life that's given here, right? We have the time she was a virgin until the time she reached this milestone of 84 years old. And it's actually unclear in the original language whether or not she was 84 at the time of Jesus' birth or she was, lived 84 years after she became a widow. So either way, she was truly advanced in age and especially in a time when life expectancy was far shorter than it is now. And Luke makes it clear that she is a prophetess. And so this gives her a little bit of a unique role. We only have... Five examples of prophetesses in the Old Testament and one other example of a prophetess in the New Testament. So Luke also wrote Acts, right? So he not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote Acts. So he's anticipating the Pentecost when in Acts 2, Peter stands up before a crowd of people and he preaches the Gospel and he quotes Joel and he says, in these last days, these days when we're waiting for Jesus to return again, that your daughters will, and sons will prophesy. So Luke had a category for more people, both women and men, to be prophets and prophetesses. But in the biblical, like, scriptural arc, Anna is very unique. This shows us that God's gifts are given to people regardless of gender. And this would have been a radical concept that would have been remarkable in the ancient world, where women had very little value in Roman society. 
So what Luke is doing here is he is giving us a brief snapshot of Anna, and he's authenticating the testimony of Jesus' birth and showing us how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So remember that Luke is writing to a critic, right? He's writing to people that are questioning faith or maybe Christians who are wondering, are these stories about Jesus, are they real? So Luke is exploring that, right? At the beginning of Luke, he says to the most excellent Theophilus, which is probably the patron who's funding his research. And Luke is making the case for Jesus really being the God-man, being the Messiah, the promised one, the savior of the world. And in order to prove the accuracy and the authenticity of Jesus' birth, he gives two witnesses. And the first one is Simeon, who Gabe talked about last week. And Simeon was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he lived a faithful and righteous life, waiting for Jesus to be born. God had promised him that he would see the Messiah. And he's depicted on the left in the painting that's on the screen. The painting is uh, a painting by de Gelder, and de Gelder was an apprentice of Rembrandt, and Rembrandt painted a very similar painting to that. And the second witness that we have is Anna, and she's on the, uh, the right-hand side of that painting. And for Anna, for Luke, Anna also served as a powerful witness to the baby Jesus for two reasons. One, in a day which marginalized women and pushed them to the margins of society, the fringe of society, in God's eyes, she had lived a righteous and faithful life. And that qualified her to be an authentic witness, a witness who would have a testimony that stands in court. And then secondly, her life served as a picture of what it means to live our lives prepared to meet Jesus. And so the first thing I want to bring our attention to in Anna's life is this. Joy comes through emptiness. A life of joy is one where joy comes through emptiness. And the word joy is not used in our passage to describe Anna, but you might have heard it in the way that she tells everyone about the Messiah who was just born, or the way that she waited expectantly for her Messiah. And we'll cover more of this later, but my question to you now is this. What prepared Anna to respond with such joy to Jesus? What prepared Anna to respond with joy to Jesus? Our answer is found in verse 37. Let me read that again for us. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, what is not true about this is that the pathway to joy is found in spending all of your time at church or doing a bunch of religious stuff. You don't have to be a pastor to find true joy. And I can tell you that there is nothing inherent or maybe very little inherent in church work that gives me or those people in full-time ministry an advantage in finding joy. No, what Luke is trying to remind us here is that through Anna's life, she consistently and constantly pursued the presence of God. That's where she found her joy. And it was in this pursuit of the presence of God through cultivating these habits, one fasting, another prayer, where she was able to live in his presence. The temple was meant to be a temporary place, a prelude to the reality of Jesus coming and to God giving us his manifest presence through Jesus. And so she pursued God by spending her time at the temple, which is where in the Old Testament the presence of God dwelled with his people, represented the presence of God. But now that we have Jesus, remember when Jesus died on the cross, 
the curtain of the temple ripped. And that's to symbolize that the power of God, the Holy Spirit, had been unleashed into the world. The power of God is now out into the world, and now it dwells in believers. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come in Pentecost, and he did in power. And so the Holy Spirit dwells within his people, both individually and corporately in the body of Christ, the church, the new temple. I'm reminded of these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So this means that Sunday is not the only day that we are able to experience God's presence. God's presence is with us if we are believers. He indwells us all the time. So that means when we go to bed tonight or when we wake up and drive to work tomorrow morning on a Monday morning or when we go out on Friday night, God's presence is always with us. We also glean from the life of Anna that there are spiritual habits which she devoted herself that cultivated this presence of God. These are habits of prayer and fasting. And these are practices of emptying ourselves. That's why I said joy is found through emptying. And this practice of emptying awakens us to the fullness of joy in God's presence. So remember Psalm 16, in your presence is the fullness of joy. Let's talk a little bit about these two habits. So for prayer, we most likely, we, we often think of prayer as our way of communicating with God. It's our way of talking with God. And there's nothing inherently wrong about that, but the Bible has a much more rich and robust definition of prayer. Prayer for Jesus was never just a way to send and receive messages, but it was a way of being in the presence of his Father. So often being with God comes when we've emptied ourselves of all the wordiness and words that we have, and we're able to just rest silently in his presence. Prayer is there for us to abide in God even when we have no words to share. And for example, let me give you this example. This is one of my favorite uh, illustrations that I kind of have in my back pocket. Um, in the 1980s, the CBS anchor Dan Rather interviewed Mother Teresa. And in this interview, he asked her, he said this, what, when you pray, what do you say to God? I was like, that would be the question I ask Mother Teresa too. What do you, what, you're close to God, right? What do you pray when you pray? And this is how Mother Teresa answered. She said, I don't say anything. I listen. And Dan Rather, he was kind of flummoxed by this. So he tried again. He said, okay, well, when you listen, what does God say to you? And she said, he listens. And then... He, he, had, he was baffled. <laughs> and then she, she followed it up with this. She said, and if you don't understand that, then I can't explain it to you. Sometimes prayer is the process of emptying ourselves of our words so that we can just enjoy the presence of God. Fasting. Fasting is a different form of emptying. In fasting, we empty ourselves of things which we might naturally turn to for comfort or for escape or for joy. And so we remember and give our attention to the one who truly satisfies. And John Piper says this about fasting. It's a great quote. Most of us run the risk of being overly sensualized simply by having every craving satisfied and rarely pausing in a moment of self-denial to discover if there are alive within us spiritual appetites that could satisfy us at a much deeper level than food. 
So fasting is a process of emptying ourselves. So we have a renewed sense of our spiritual senses to the fullness of joy that is found in Jesus. So in other words, it makes us pay attention to what we should pay, be paying attention to. And in the common rule, Justin Early says this. He says, fasting is to let your desires hang out in the open where you can observe them. And as I prepared for this sermon and I read those quotes, I realized I need to take a time of fasting this year and probably from tech, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Netflix or all of them or one of them, something, I need a break. And I need to start stripping these things from my life in order that my spiritual senses are awakened to what God's doing inside of me and also to be awakened to what God is doing inside of the people that are around me too. So let me encourage you too to take a week at the start of this new year and fast. And maybe it's food, maybe it's tech, maybe it's dating apps, maybe it's sugar, whatever it is. Let it be something that you turn to for comfort or for escape. Force yourself to be awakened, to have your spiritual senses awakened to the presence of God. Often I turn to Netflix just in, after a long day just to kind of numb myself. I feel numb. It's a way of escape. So what fasting does is it forces us to push through that and to say that there actually might be something that satisfies me more deeply than this. So we've seen that a life prepared to meet Jesus is one where joy comes through emptiness. But we also observe from the life of Anna that joy grows through gratitude. Luke described Anna as a widow, and I think he tells, her, tells us this for a reason. She buried her husband after only seven years of marriage. So she lived her life as a widow for the lion's share of her life. Luke shares this because he wants us to know that Anna had experienced real sorrow, real loss, real grief. If there was anyone who had good reason to grow bitter in her old age, I think it was Anna for these four reasons. Her husband was taken away from her far too soon. She may have been childless. She served at a, as a prophetess as a time, at a time where God was silent for 400 years. Her people were being oppressed by the heavy hand of Rome. And even with all that, she is still described as a woman of gratitude in verse 38. Look with me at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. If you're anything like me, you probably are thinking, Anna's life is not necessarily one of flourishing that I would picture. It's not really a life that I would want as a believer, but it is absolutely a life filled with gratitude and fulfillment. Anna teaches us that suffering and different, difficult circumstances in life, if we give them to God, will result in gratitude and praise. So just to make sure we're on the same page, let's define gratitude. Gratitude is a thankful appreciation for what we have received, either tangible or intangible. Gratitude acknowledges the goodness in life. And for the Christian, the experience of gratitude should revolve around God's goodness to us. So UC Davis professor Dr. Robert Emmons, he's one of the leading scholars in the area of gratitude. He has this to say about gratitude. 
Gratitude is one of the strongest links to mental health and satisfaction with life of any personality trait. Grateful people experience higher levels of positive emotions, such as joy, enthusiasm, love, happiness, and optimism. Gratitude as a discipline protects us from destructive impulses of envy, resentment, greed, and bitterness. I think there's something to be said about growing in gratitude as we grow in age. Even in my relatively short life, I have seen how it's easy to become cynical and embittered, resentful. Sometimes it's easy to fixate on the negative things and to think about those things that we're, have, we have missed out on or the things that we are missing out on right now instead of trying to cultivate a life of gratitude where we're embracing every day as it comes. That's difficult. That's hard. Thiabiti Anabaile. I got it. I was worried about that. That's a name. Um, a pastor and theologian, he says this in his commentary on Luke. As we age, let us become more expert in giving thanks for thousands of days of fresh mercy God has shown us. And Anna is a beautiful picture of a woman who's aged well and aged by growing and cultivating gratitude. And I don't think this is because Anna is naive or blissfully ignorant about the sorrows of her life. I think in the midst of difficulty, she was able to cultivate this posture and attitude of gratitude and gratefulness. We all know that we should be grateful, and I'm not here to guilt trip you in that this morning. What I want to chart a path forward for all of us, including myself, is how we actually grow in gratitude. Because that still remains a mystery. Like, how is this a posture that we should have? How do we incorporate this into our lives every day? And I'll admit I don't have all the answers to this one, so maybe one of you out there does. You can tell me afterwards, and I'll incorporate it into the next sermon that I preach at 1045. Um, but here's my shot at this, this, this sermon. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a woman's life, and she has impacted me greatly for some time, and her picture's up on the screen. She, has experienced, she experienced a rough childhood. She grew up in poverty, she dropped out of college twice, moved to New York City. She was arrested twice before the age of 25. She was someone who was searching long and hard for meaning in life. In her early years, she found meaning through activ activism for the left, but then she gave birth to her first child. And she wrote, immediately after she gave birth, she wrote a, a memoir of her experience of giving birth. Which is really fascinating. And she says, the moment I hold, held my child in my arms, I felt the urge to worship and to adore. And so what she did is she ended up going to church. She wanted to meet a creator. And after that day, she ended up dedicating her life in service to the poor in New York City. And this woman's name is Dorothy Day. And Dorothy Day didn't have an easy life. That was just a snapshot. And if you read her autobiography, The Long Loneliness, that will tell you as much. But what Dorothy Day did have is gratitude. And she was a great writer, a fantastic writer. But when she sat down to write in her final years to write her last words, her last memoir, she said she couldn't write down anything. No words came. She said she just sat and she thought about our Lord who had come and visited us those thousands of years ago. And she was just thankful to have him on her mind for so long in her life. I think there's a little secret in that. 
The posture of gratitude towards God is a posture of a person who's willing to just sit and remind themselves of the gospel. That long ago, Jesus came to save that which was lost. In the ultimate reversal, we did not have to climb our way up to God. He came down to us, and our Savior grew up as a boy. We're celebrating, we just celebrated the birth of Jesus. He grew up as a boy in a simple life. And in many ways, he had a difficult and painful life. At the age of 33, he was crucified and bled out on a piece of wood. His followers had deserted him. And what the world saw as the greatest failure, heaven celebrated as the greatest victory. And in his resurrection, sin was defeated. Death no longer has its sting. We have a future, a hope, and an identity We have reason to trust this God to provide for us, to care for us, and at some point in our lives to call us home to himself. Are we prepared to meet Jesus more today than we were last year at this time? How often do we just sit and meditate on the gospel? I think one way to remember the gospel is just to come to church on Sundays. Just be here. I'm glad you're here this morning. Each Sunday we gather here simply to remember the God who visited us long ago and be thankful that we can spend our lives with him. A life prepared to meet Jesus finds joy that comes through emptiness. It grows in gratitude. And finally, joy multiplies through sharing. Joy multiplies through sharing. So it's at this point in the story where I think we see Anna's joy on full display. Her heart pours out. And she can't contain herself after hearing the news of the promised Messiah that's come. Look with me again at verse 38. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So it's not explicit in this passage that Anna has heard the news about the birth of baby Jesus. But given Luke's track record of precision, his record combined with the intentionality to link Anna's story with Simeon, and both these stories take place in the temple. And in Anna's story, he records this phrase, at that very hour, right? In the beginning of verse 38, at that very hour. So we can conclude that Anna has actually seen the manifestation of God in the flesh. She has seen baby Jesus. And what I love about her response, this 84-year-old woman goes and shares the joy of the good news And Luke says that she says, she shares it with all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna doesn't waste any time doing this. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I think we need to consider Anna's posture here. She doesn't do it from a place of obligation or with a tone of coercion, but she shares it with a natural joy that comes from sharing great news. I have one more quote for you. Madeline L'Engle says this. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. By telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I was, uh, when I was in college is when I came, really Jesus became Lord over my life. And uh, he encountered me through about these four guys that were just on the fringe of Taylor's campus. Um, They loved Jesus. Uh, These guys, they were not the guys that were standing up in chapel. Taylor was a Christian school. 
they loved rock and roll music. They didn't take showers. Uh, they studied. They, they were grunge. Uh, they listened to, played folk music. And I just enjoyed hanging out with them. They were all older than me, so I was kind of enthralled with them. Um, but what they did do was they were always talking about Jesus. And they were reading his word. And it wasn't in a trite way. It was in a way where I could sense the Holy Spirit on them. I could sense the peace in them and also just the wisdom. And I wanted to know the source of that. What was inspiring these guys to live in the way that they lived? To talk about the things that they talked about? And so that's when Jesus encountered me, was in college. And it was just these four edgy guys on the fringe of Taylor University's campus that were talking about Jesus and living life pursuing Jesus. And the way that we share the gospel is first to fall in love with the gospel and then to live it and then just to share what we love. Our lives are a representation of what we love. We worship what we love. We talk about what we love. And so sharing the gospel revolves around sharing what we love. This is exactly what Anna does in, her, in our passage. She's sharing with people that the Messiah has come. The Savior has shown up at last. But I want to get real. And I want to be super honest. No whipping it up. Just total honesty about the tasks that we have before us as a church. For some of us, the last thing that we think of when sharing the gospel is joy. For some of us, sharing our faith can just seem intimidating. We might never have really been equipped to do it by our church. But that's what Ben wants me to do right now. And I don't like talking with people about it. And my hands get clammy. And I don't have the right words to say. And what will my co-workers think? And I get that. I get it. I understand. Sharing the gospel can be hard. It's harder for some of us than it is for others. And for a lot of us, the angst that we feel over sharing the gospel can strip us of the joy that comes from sharing the gospel. How many of you here have been in Razor's Edge? You know, yeah, wow, a lot of you. I shouldn't have raised my hand. Um, I wasn't trying to guilt those who, <laughs> who haven't been to Razor's. But next fall, sign up. Um, so this is going to be a little pitch for Razor's Edge. In Razor's Edge, one of the things we talk about is sharing the gospel. It's our discipleship pathway. So we talk about sharing the gospel and what it means to talk to people about the way of Jesus. And what we did this last session, and Gabe does an awesome job leading, leading Razor's Edge. So really, I can't commend you enough to take Razor's Edge. But one of the things that we talked about this last session, I did it for the first time, was we talked about exterior barriers to sharing the gospel and interior barriers to sharing the gospel. And exterior barriers are things that are happening out there that make it difficult for us to share the gospel. And these are big words like postmodernism, pluralism, suspicion of meta-narratives, things that we wouldn't necessarily talk about, but we're naming what's happening in our culture. Those are exterior barriers to sharing the gospel. And then there are these interior barriers to sharing the gospel, these things that are, that are within us, that are happening and wrestling around in our soul. So one of those things would be personal sin being constantly trapped in an inward cycle of wrestling, and then we feel robbed of any spiritual confidence and any authority in sharing the gospel. And then there's fear of man, and this is the question, like, what will people think of me if I share the gospel? And then the last one is, is just distraction. Many of us are just distracted. We spend our lives behind screens, or we're focusing on social media, or we're even dedicating our lives to keep up with the, the cutting edge of our industry. 
but we live in a state of distraction where we're constantly silencing the voice of God in our lives. And so this is great stuff in Razor's Edge, and I don't want to give it all away. That's a little pitch, but there's two things that I want to share from Razor's Edge that we talked about that I hope will encourage you to share the gospel this morning. One, you don't have to save the world. You just have to be faithful to where God has called you. The saving the world job has been taken. Anna, Anna realized that thousand years ago when Jesus came. The saving the world job has been taken. Our job, like Anna, is to tune our ear towards what God is calling us to do each day, which is to be faithfully and fruitfully present in our jobs, among our coworkers, and in the midst of our families and friends. And two, we rely on God's grace, not our performance. The Bible is full of people like Anna who are simply walking by faith and looking to the Lord and trying to live faithfully for him. The Bible's story is full of normal people that God has chosen to accomplish his mission. You think of Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul, David. All of these guys had issues. They all had issues. And if you're waiting to become a super spiritual version of yourself, you're going to have to wait forever. Ultimately, when we live by faith, it requires us as normal people to rely on God's grace and not our performance. So let me encourage you that you don't have to save the world. Please trust in God's grace, not your performance. And with those two things in mind, it's way easier to share the gospel and to live into the joy that sharing the gospel bring, brings. Joy multiplies when we share the gospel. Who are you going to share the gospel with this next year? I began by asking the question this morning, are you prepared to meet Jesus? And I phrased it in a way of, are we more prepared to meet Jesus today than we were last year at this time? And if you're not a question, Christian, this question is also for you. Are you prepared to meet Jesus for the first time? This news of salvation and redemption that Anna shares with others is also for you. Jesus has come. He has suffered for you. He, suffer, he suffers with you. And in, in a way, you can find hope and healing in him. So are you prepared to meet him and respond to him? I would love to talk with you, and Gabe would love to talk with you, pray with you. If you're a Christian, the question is, Christian, the question is still for you. Are you prepared to encounter Jesus every day? Are you prepared to talk with him, speak to him, hear from him? Our joy in Jesus is cultivated by habits like prayer and fasting, making space to empty ourselves in order that we might be filled by Jesus. Our joy grows through gratitude and is multiplied through sharing. So this next year, I encourage you to live and cultivate a life with God. And what do I mean, a life with God? A life with God is one where you're determined to live in God's presence, guided by habits that consciously help us experience his presence. God doesn't want you to try to earn your way up to him or curry his favor. God wants, you to, share your, God wants to share your life with you. He wants to walk with you, to enjoy your company, if you do this, I think you'll find that a life lived in the presence of God is a life of joy. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your words. Father, I pray that it wouldn't just be black words on white pages, but that it would speak to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us to be attentive to you 
these next few days and even into this new year. That we would cultivate a life with you, God. Not trying to live a life necessarily for you or to work our way up to you, but to live a life with you, enjoying your presence, cultivating your presence. Lord, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the sacrifice that you made in coming to be one of us. May we always see hope in you, God. We love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.